and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, let's get our Bibles out, something to write with. We're going to be in the New Testament book of John. Um, you can be turning to the fourth chapter. We're going to continue in our series titled today, um, So That You May Believe. That's the title of the series, right? If, if you're new to us, we're working our way through the gospel of John, the fourth gospel in the Bible, verse by verse, just kind of going, uh, kind of plodding along. And I say the fourth gospel because there are three others in the Bible just before it that we often refer to as the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we call those the synoptic Gospels because they're all kind of similar telling the story kind of from different vantage points. Uh, it, it gives us kind of this literal 3D uh, view of who Jesus is in his life. And all four Gospels have this slightly different point of view. Uh, they don't contradict, and it's, it's fascinating. All four Gospels are wonderful. They're a gift from God to us because they reveal who Jesus is. And these, along with the rest of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are gifts uh, from God to us. So we often say that this book is made up of 66 different books in here, 66 different books, without this revealed book, the, the God we, we know would not have been known without this book. Does that make sense? I mean, this is why we study this thing. If you think about it, we can only know God, what he has chosen to reveal to us. And we can't know him con- uh, comprehensively because he's infinite, we're finite. But listen, we can know him truly. We can know him truly. In his inscripturated word. In other words, words of scripture, God reveals his incarnate word. Incarnate just means he became flesh, his son. Hebrews chapter one, verse three tells us that it's Jesus who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. In revealing himself in this way, God condescends, or think of it this way, he's like a parent who's stoops down to a little kid and talks to him like this. Does that make sense? That's what scripture is. It gets down to our level. But this book that we find something different compared, this book of John, we compared to the other three gospels. The apostle John says he is writing this book with the very specific intention of showing us this Jesus he is describing is the son of God the second person of the Trinity. He says, the other books are great. You should read those. He describes Jesus' words, his actions, and many signs and wonders. He's an old man when he writes this, probably in his 90s, with the intention that he says in chapter 20, so that you may believe. He says, I'm writing this down for that reason. Well, let's dig into this, but let's begin by asking God just to bless our time through his Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads as... You just prepare your heart for this time of hearing God. Take just a few moments to prepare your thoughts and your minds and maybe ask him to focus your mind right now. Get rid of all the stuff from the week past or the week coming. Is there any sin or sins that you need to repent of? 
Just do that right now. Just give them over to God. You're forgiven of them if you're in Christ Jesus. God, our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, as brothers and sisters in the faith. We ask that your Holy Spirit speak to you, uh, speak your truth to us. Open these words of truth that you have given us. Apply these words of truth to our heart, God. Lord, I ask that you help me preach the truth and that I would be able to get out of the way and just show you to the people in this church. God, our true desire is that we, we want to know you. We want to see you in these words revealed. We want to go deep, to grow deep in our relationship with you. So we ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, let's stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Our text today is taken from the fourth chapter of John, verses 21 through 24, not very long. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. He's answering her question, where and how to worship. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the word of God. Amen? You may be seated. If that passage doesn't sound familiar to you, you haven't heard it, maybe that one in a while, well then, welcome to Bent Tree. We are so glad you're here. Because if... You've been a part of Bentry in the last few weeks, months. You know that we have been studying this passage, really the last couple of weeks specifically. Now, you might be tempted to think, Paul, you're stuck. Like a car kind of stuck in deep snow and tires are just spinning. You're like going, hey, Paul, get out of the car and, and push it a little bit. You know, maybe rock it. Do you ever try that thing? Reverse, forward, reverse, forward. Get, get that thing back on the road. And, but let me assure you, we're not stuck. No, rather, we're staying right here and getting everything out of this little passage that we can, that Jesus is teaching us. Because right here, tons of really good stuff. Really good gold. Plus, I, I drive a Jeep and, and we just don't get stuck. I'm just saying. We get temporarily detained, but we have winches to pull ourselves out. But I, I will say this little passage is going to take some work on your part. I, I can't just spoon food, uh, spoon food, <laughs> spoon feed. <laughs> uh, it's hard to preach. It's hard to preach with a brain like mine. I can't just spoon feed you this stuff. You're going to have to do some work. But I will say that this passage is going um, to reveal some, also some deep gold, like that little analogy that we've been using along the way. Uh, for the last few weeks of digging in the gold mine. That's what we're doing now. We're, we're digging deep here today. This storyline um, is not here. And what I mean is we, we follow something different today. So I need you to focus with me on this. Um, just to remind you, we've been zeroing in on this phrase that Jesus 
uses here in verse 23 and then again in 24. So look in verse 23 in your own Bible or up here. But an hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Do you see the phrase there? True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then we see it again in verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Here it is. Now we've spent the last couple of times together looking at what both spirit means and truth means. Uh, Let's remind ourselves what this is. First spirit. Now some of you may disagree with this and think that what Jesus is referring to is the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here, but listen close. Certainly the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of every single believer from the moment we are regenerated or what Jesus calls when we are born again. And the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the spirit of truth as part of his ministry to lead us in all truth. So he definitely has an important role to play, critically important role to play in true worship. We'll explore that today as well. But what this passage right here is referring to is our being born again, our regeneration as God calls us to life in him from spiritual death. Now, in other words, because we have been born into this sin-fallen dead world, we are born dead in spirit. Now, remember the cell phone analogy. When a cell phone doesn't have Wi-Fi or signal from a cell tower, the phone can still function. You can still get some things out of there. But if it can't connect, if it doesn't have signal, you run out of things to do pretty quick. It can't update. You can charge it like it it comes on, but it doesn't do much. It's alive in one sense, but dead in the sense that it has no connection to the network. Does that make sense? Like that connect with you. Before we are saved by God, before we are called to life in Christ Jesus, we are dead in spirit, no reception. There's just no way to communicate with God. It's not like you're physically dead, although I question a couple of you during church. (laughs) So that when we say worship in spirit, mentioned here in verse 23, and then again in 24, is referring to having been called to life in Christ Jesus. It's like suddenly we have, boop, signal. A spiritual signal. Okay, write this down. Only regenerated people are capable of true worship that is pleasing to God. Only regenerated people are capable of true worship that is pleasing to God. I'm not saying lost people can't sing. Some of them can sing really well. We are saved, we are regenerated, born from above is the literal translation to being born again. Are you with me? Because if you don't get this part, the next part's not gonna make sense. So make sure you're, you're on board this train. The other part we looked at was this requirement that Jesus repeats over here in worship. It's not just in spirit, but also in truth. 
Now, we spent much of our time when we met last time on the subject of truth, dissecting it, saying, what is that? But we could go weeks on this subject right here, but I want us to dive into truth a little bit more. The definition of truth at a basic level at least points to where we need to go next. This is is important to understand because do you remember our definition of truth? Do you remember that? This is a few weeks ago. Here it is. Truth, that which is in accordance with reality. Truth, that which is in accordance with reality. I know that it could feel like we've covered this ground, but please go with me for the next few moments here as we think about truth. We saw something about truth last time we met. We said truth is exclusive. It excludes everything that is not true. So what that means is there cannot be multiple truths can only be one single truth. And the last time we looked at how Jesus claims several times to his followers to not only be the son of God, but that he is the truth. He says this about himself. Let's look at it again and add verse seven this time. John 14, verse six. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. It's a truth claim, exclusive statement. It's either true or false. He says, if you know me, you will also know my father. From now on, you do know me, know him and have seen him. We see the father because we have seen the son, right? Now think about this. God himself discloses to us through this book we call the Bible, truth, right? The great theologian Francis Schaeffer says biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality. It answers all the questions of where we came from, what our purpose is in breathing this air, what our future is, why we're here. And the truth we believe in Christ Jesus not only answers the question of the origin, where we are now, it also points to a relationship that is available and we are destined for with God the Father through God the Son by the Holy Spirit. Now, Francis Schaeffer also says this truth. Now, check this quote out. Great theologian. Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural but rather truth spelled with a capital T. What Francis Schaeffer is saying here is that the truth of Christ is a singular paradigm. Paradigm simply means worldview. In other words, the singular truth of Christ defines all other truth. A singular truth, it tells us, tells us of our past. It tells us of our future. The one way we can get to salvation through Christ Jesus. But the world says, no, 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 no. Truth is what is in you. Truth is in all of us. The world says, truth is in everything. Truth is in nothing. Truth is in many things. Truth is in all the religions. Truth is not religion at all. The true The truth is science. The truth is my experience. The truth is your experience. The truth is not truth at all. The truth is relative to the situation you find yourself in. The truth is art. No, no, no. The truth is beauty. 
The truth is pain. No, the truth is suffering. The truth is, the truth is, the truth is they have no idea what they're talking about. The world can't even agree on a definition of truth. Now, you'll notice a thing that comes all together. They all agree on one thing, that Jesus is not it. Isn't that interesting? That's because the world has fallen into the lies of Satan, who is also known as the name given to him by Jesus himself. Got to love this title for Satan, the father of lies. Another one of my favorite pastors, theologians. It's another dead guy. I love old dead theologians. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, you ever see a book by him, read it. He says this about truth. He says, truth holds together. There is no phase of truth that is not related to every other phase of truth. All things that are true are part of the truth and stand in proper relationship to God who is himself the truth. Now what Boyce is trying to say here is not just a theological truth, but all truth stands in proper relationship to God. Truth is always consistent with itself. All lies will always contradict at some point. And if you think about what the world calls truth, all these different things that don't and can't go together, truth holds together because it comes from God. A single point. Now, I I know that we're deep here. I know that we're deep. But listen, the reason this is so important is that is that at the heart of knowing God and having a relationship with him for all eternity or the other side, being at war with God and God being your enemy. By the way, you don't want God as your enemy. Jesus who claims the truth is saying, come to me, I am the way to get to God through me. On the other hand, lies don't care what you believe. They don't. Satan says, hey, believe whatever you want as long as it's not Jesus. As long as you don't believe the capital T truth, Satan says, you can believe whatever you want, right? By the way, who is the father of lies again? And do you know what he is? He's a fallen angel. The very first picture of him we see in Genesis chapter 3. Go ahead and flip to that. The very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. We've been looking. You remember the proto-evangelium. The Latin term for first gospel. Or first mention of the gospel. In, verse, or in chapter 3 verse 1. When we, we see him trying to deceive the woman to sin against God. Let's take a look. Second half of verse 1. I put the word Satan in here so you'd know the he it's talking about. He, Satan, said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? This is Satan through the serpent as he talks with Eve. To sell his lie and to deceive the woman, what does he do here? Three things. Now this is so sneaky. If you're not watching very closely, this will just slip right by you. It will deceive you too. Watch. First, Satan intentionally misquotes what God had given as a command to the man and woman of what they could and could not eat. Satan says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see what Satan's doing here, don't you? This is sneaky, isn't it? He's slipping in a false quote from God and then asking the woman to defend the false quote. Look what God had really said to the man. Flip backwards to chapter 2. 
verses 15. This is God talking to Adam. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. But you must not eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. God had actually said, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden. By the way, that also included the tree of life in the middle of the garden. But what he had warned them not to eat was one tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And why had God prohibited them from eating of that one tree? He said, because you will surely die if you eat it. Now, this was actually love, wasn't it? To give them this warning. It's love. Like a parent saying, honey, that stove's hot to a little kid. Stove's hot. You touch it, it's going to burn you. It's, gonna, it's really going to hurt. Now, what Satan says to the woman and to the man, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's, it's like when people ask you a question, but the premise of the question is wrong. And then they ask you to defend the wrong premise, the wrong assumption. Either way you answer it, you're stuck. Politicians do this all the time. It's like if I came to you and said, <clears throat> how's it going? You know, like I'm your pastor, just checking in. Like what's, how's your walk going? You doing well? You're in your Bible? You're going, yeah, yeah. I could always be more. That's what people always say. You always be more. I say, you know, you still robbing banks? You see what's wrong? The assumption I'm putting into the conversation in the form of a question is that you rob banks. And no matter what you answer, yes or no, it's wrong, unless you rob banks. Why? The original assumption is wrong. The second thing Satan does here, check this out, is to sell you a lie, is to steer you away from what God really and truly said by suggesting something that has some truth in it, but just a little off. So if you don't know what God says in the first place, you become pretty easy prey for Satan. I mean, you're just easy to push over. Look how the woman responds, and we'll see what Satan does with her answer. Look at verse 3, back to chapter 3, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, the woman got the basic thing right. God had said, you must not eat of the forbidden tree. But then she had added, or touch it. What was her problem with her response? It was wrong. She didn't really know what God had instructed she had heard the prohibition of not eating uh, the forbidden fruit from her husband who had heard it from God, but she didn't really know what God truly had said. And she had added some stuff in there. By the way, separate sermon someday, but, but Adam, we find out, is standing right next to her. And, and, and Adam doesn't speak up. You know, I was like, Adam, your job, we just read, is to protect the garden, to work it. I'm like going, Adam, kill the snake, dude. Step up. Kill the snake. By the way, 
The first service didn't get this. You're getting it now because I want to tell you. Some of you daddies, some of you need to kill the snake in your house. You need to step up. Mama's too. Mama's too. But Adam's like, oh, oh, oh. So Satan has already begun to plant the seed of doubt in her mind of what God had said within that intentionally wrong statement about what God had originally said. And look where Satan takes it next. This is fascinating. This is the third thing Satan does as he responds to the woman. He simply says in verse 4, no. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan calls God a liar. Satan says, you can't trust God because he's out to get you. It it won't work for you. It's not the truth Eve, the truth is something else, anything else. The truth is anything you want it to be. Satan has given this woman another alternative truth. By the way, does this little scenario sound familiar? Like, like is this a little deja vu for you? Why is that? Because it's the exact same thing that happens in your mind every single time you sin. When you know what God's word is and you say, but I like an alternative truth. What you do when you say that is you go, God, you're a liar. Come on. Because this process that happens every time that God says what God says is the truth is his word. It's in the Bible. But then we think of ways that we can kind of get around the truth. And we come up with an alternative set of facts (laughs) that will fit much better into what we want. Just for now. It's just for now. Check this out. Yes, it may be Satan tempting you. I don't even need Satan to tempt me. I'm screwed up on my own, thank you very much. My own flesh can go, hey, yeah, you want something different than that. That ain't gonna help. Jesus tells us, don't worry about what you'll wear, what you will eat, for your heavenly Father knows what you need. Amen? I read that and think, yes, amen, that's right. I should not worry. Then money gets a little tight and I hear the words of Satan once again or my own flesh that says, well, God's busy and stuff. Paul, you got to take care of your family. You got to do what you got to do. You got to do what's right for you. Boom! Temptation, sin, I fall into worry. That's one of mine right there. It just is. And it's at that point that I'm tempted to worry that I have a choice to make. That's how we fall to Satan. Satan, we we fall to sin. I mean, think about the sins of lust, idolatry, coveting. Baby, you name it. What's crazy to me is that I know the Bible. I do. And yet, no matter what God says is true, there's always a world out there and something in me that says, no, 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 that's not right. The truth is somewhere else. But some of you, you're like Eve. You kind of know some of what the Bible says, but not really. You often don't know when someone's misquoting Scripture or quotes it out of context or But what God tells us through his word, the Bible, there is only one truth. That all truth is divine truth. 
that really all truth is God's truth, for that matter. Now, the truth is total. It is absolute. It is, if you think about it, there cannot be any absolutes without God. Truth, I'm talking real truth, is always objective, never subjective. Now, back once again to Jesus talking to this woman at the well, asking him where and how to worship. He says this to the woman in verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is powerful. But if you are going to have to do some work here to get to this. Lord, help them get this. How do we put this together? Truth and spirit and worship together. How do we put that together? Well, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that you can worship in spirit or truth. We have to recognize that true worshipers will have to be in both. Like the word in, I-N, in. I, I know I'm being really super simple, but hey, it's me. Think through this with me. If we're going to be true worshipers and not false worshipers, we must be in both these things. Now, what does in mean? I-N. It means being on the inside of something, doesn't it? If you are not in something, what are you? Outside. If you're out, you are outside of it. Here's the thing we know. Because of the doctrine of original sin, that we are born into a fallen world, we can't not not sin. We just can't. We're just, we just sin. Believers, we're forgiven of the sin, but we're born into that. If we're born into this fallen world, what are we out of then? That we, that's right, that we are outside the grace of God. We're outside the Spirit. Like the cell phone doesn't have any signal. Because our our sin, we have no way to connect to God. There's just no way to get there. But what else are we out of here? Truth. Because we're like in this sea of lies here. Because of our sin, because we believe the lie of Satan and not God's word, we're outside of truth. So we're outside of the spirit, outside of truth. And remember, let's put this all together. Who claims to be the truth? Jesus does. Now, how does this tie into worship then? What is Jesus saying to this woman? Because remember, worship is. Do you remember? Let's pull this up from a few weeks ago. Here's the definition. Worship is the odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of God. Worship is the odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of God. I tie this all together with me. Holy Spirit, help me get this across. If we are in Christ Jesus, that means we have been made alive through him. Listen to Jesus' prayer to God the Father. This is in John 17, verse 20. Listen close. Jesus says, I pray not only for these, talking about the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That'd be us. So Jesus is praying for you and I here as well. 
May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Y'all tracking? May they, talking about us, also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. See here he's talking about relationship here. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Whoo, that's good stuff. If Christ Jesus is the truth that he claims to be, and we think he is the son of God, we are in him, and he is in us. Now, what we're saying here is a deep relationship with God, and yet, hmm, words begin to crumble under the weight as we glimpse this this passage we just try to understand this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This deep love, the, this relationship in the, the middle of the Godhead, the perfect happiness, the perfect completeness, the perfect joy in that relationship. It's not lacking anything, anything in that trinity. We are invited into that relationship through the work of Jesus' his death and resurrection at the direction of God the Father, made possible by the Spirit, waking us from the dead. You with me? Look at this. Write this down. We can't worship in spirit if we are not in the truth. We can't worship in spirit if we are not in the truth. And at the very same time, we cannot be in the truth unless our spirit has been made alive through the regeneration of God calling us to life. In him. Being born again. Once again, we see right here the sovereign election of God who alone has the power to call us from spiritual death into spiritual life. And get this it's not only who and when he calls people to life through the gospel message, it is the very means by which we are called that God ordains in his sovereignty. Do you get that? God ordains both the people he will save and how and when he will save them. He even in his providence, his plan, determines which other specific believers will deliver the message to us. Now here's the thing. Let's funnel this down in how we worship. True worship takes place when we are in the truth and that truth of Jesus gives us the spirit to connect to God. True worship takes place when we are in the truth and the truth of Jesus gives us the spirit to connect to God. So how can we connect this to worship? I mean, that once we are in the spirit and in truth, how do we actually put this into practice? Well, first, let me just connect this to when we, when and where we worship. There's some, obviously, there's this sense that our whole lives are worshiped. So everywhere we go, our entire lives are to be lived out as a sacrifice and worship for God. That's a much broader topic for another time. I'll preach on it. 
But right here, we want to focus on our worship here in this place right now. The body of Christ Jesus gathered together to worship as one in relationship with each other and relationship to God. But specifically, this time that we gather as we hear the word preached, and then we respond in prayer and singing and worship and giving back to God, we make this a priority to be here in this place with this group of people. Second, second, is to realize that worship is about God and not about us. It's what we are giving to God in our worship time, not what we are getting out of it. Now, certainly, we do get stuff out of it. At least I do. Do you? But, but we are lifting up God in worship. We're not lifting up ourselves. If that's true, then begin to treat this time of worship with God with other believers on Sunday morning with the gravity that it respects and that it deserves. It's not the, it's not the respect I deserve. It's what God deserves. Amen? Listen to me. It's a big freaking deal. This is the king of kings that we're talking about. This is the God who loved us enough to send his only son as a sacrifice for our sin. Third area, we have to prepare our hearts and minds for worship. If, if you're here, I mean in this room, good job. Get here to worship. Get here early. Get here with your heart, your mind, prepared to worship in spirit and in truth. Come every week you can, unless you're out of town or sick. Don't come if you're sick. But what we're saying here is if you come, come having already done some preparation before you get here. Like before you get here, spend some time in prayer. Repent of any sin that might have kind of crept in this week. Spend some time in your Bible before you get here reading it, studying it. Maybe you're reading through with the rest of us the Bible. Great. Fourth area. It may be time to up the level of reverence in your worship. Here, write this down. This is the definition of reverence. Respect respect or honor paid to a worthy object or person. Reverence. Respect or honor paid to a worthy object or person. Now, reverence does not necessarily mean quiet. It can in certain, uh, certain times. Certainly, that can be part of reverence. But what we really mean is that you take time to get here, show up, because you are paying respect and honor to a most worthy God. Amen. Let me see if I can get at it this way by asking you a question. It's not rhetorical, so I want you to answer. Do you love God? Okay. Do you mean it? Listen, I don't mean to try and hurt your feelings, but to me, observing how little respect that you pay and treat worship, it's astounding to me. To say that you love God and treat worship like you do. Not all of you. A few of you come late regularly. Missing your time of singing and worshiping God. It's almost like you time it so that you show up right when I'm getting up to speak. 
It's like you think of those opening songs, like the, those little ads before the movie, and it's like 30 ads before the movie, you're waiting for it. It's like, hey, now Paul's speaking, here's the real worship. It's like you skip the ads. Folks, that ain't right. That's not right. I get it. Sometimes things happen. You can't make it on time. There's grace in the Lord. There's no condemnation. You're, fe- you're forgiven. I'm not holding anything against you. God isn't either. And I know that there are those of you that are actually serving during our worship time. People on our production team, a security team. They have to get up and walk around. People in generations, uh, uh, they're having to come in late or get here a little early or leave a little bit early. You see that happen. And, and that's cool. Listen, that's all still worship because they're serving the body in worship. You see what I mean? But there are a few of you that... You treat singing as if it were some kind of optional thing, like if you like to sing, I'll sing. I mean, you don't even try to mumble out a few words. You're like, like when is this thing going to be over? You, you should be lifting up your voice, you, even if you can't sing. And listen, I'm a singer, and that hurts me to say that, because some of you can't sing. I'm just kidding, because... I love it when I hear people that can't sing. They just go, I just love Jesus. It's not for us. You're lifting your voice to God. It's for him, right? You're, you're giving a sacrifice to God. I promise you that learning to treat worship with the deep respect it deserves will change the depth of, of your walk with Jesus. It will. Let me share with you just a few verses. This is from the Apostle Paul. Romans Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. I've heard it said that the problem with being a living sacrifice instead of a dead sacrifice, living sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar, right? He's like, get back up there. It's me so often. I start thinking about church on Sunday and worship. I start thinking it's all about me when it's not. It's what I bring to the king in worship, not what I get. Listen to this passage, Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. By the way, did you know that about a month ago, our children in Generations Ministry, I love this, Uh, Next door, they memorize this verse. That's because we value worship generationally here at Bentry Church. And Jesus does too. He likes the little kids to come to him and sing and worship. Christians, Christian, let me just ask, how long has it been since you worshiped on your knees? Come on, come come up with a date. You don't have to tell me, just when is it? Some of you are like, I'm not sure I've ever done it. Some of you, we couldn't get you up off the floor if you went down on your knees. So, And listen, we're not saying you're trying to go into some kind of holy trance and the Holy Spirit takes over your physical body and you get slain in the spirit and, and you can't control stuff. Listen, that's just wrong and weird. Let's, can we just all agree on that? There's some crazy churches that teach that. But you do not see that in the Bible. You just don't. And just in case you're wondering... I grew up in churches like that. Maybe I can tell you every bit of doctrine they have. 
and it's all screwed up. Listen to this admonition to the church, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15. I will pray with the Spirit. Notice small S Spirit. And I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit. And I will also sing praise with my understanding. God wants you to pray and sing in the Spirit. The signal. But also with your mind as well. Again, It's not something that just kind of takes over you. But let me just, it's not just with your mind either. It's not just mental. It's physical. We jam for Jesus here. I don't know if you noticed. The team of worship leaders, they work hard to lead us in worship. Listen to Psalm 150 and see if you uh, can get kind of just a taste of what, just a little taste of what this is like, worship in the Old Testament. Here it is. Hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. Praise him with the blast of the ram's horn. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sometimes worship can be quiet and reflective. Just a girl on a guitar leading. I love that. But baby, sometimes it should pound in your chest with a subwoofer just kicking. The fifth area I want to share with you is how to let go of your preferences. And there's no bigger one than the style of music and the lighting we use to help you join in. Another time we'll talk about this more in detail, but, but a common thing that every church wrestles with is a style of music to, to pick and to feel the feel of the room while we're singing, and while we're preaching, all of that. One of our core values is extravagant worship. Someone recently let me know that they thought that I said flamboyant worship. <laughs> no, like I got a feather boa or something. He's like, <laughs> extravagant worship. And I get it, you can misunderstand this, but what we mean is not necessarily the style of worship. Whether it be old school organ music or classical like Mozart or country and western or rock or even Gregorian chant or like what we do. What we mean is that we do our best to pour out our heart in worship, in song, singing a physical act through whatever style works best for our church. And we try to make room, make the room, the feel of the place, the music, the environment beautiful, and we use the art God has given us. We make it dark in here when we sing for a couple of reasons. One is it, in just my opinion, it just feels better so not everybody's like looking around and go, who came in late? The other reason is because we want you to be able to see the screen, the words. But with extravagant worship, we mean that whatever we do in worship, we want to do our very best ability with our very best ability. Now, our worship leaders, they do such an awesome job. They work a ton of hours writing music, arranging music, rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing to lead us in worship. We have chosen the music styles 
and those vary slightly from week to week and even season to season that we feel, feel best fits our people. That's a hard job. Listen, I've done that many times because people have different styles and tastes in music. Over the years, I've had some people say things to me like, I don't like that style of music. And I'm always tempted to say, well, good, it's not for you. It's just not. I don't say that, but I'm tempted to. Pastor Jeff and his, his team have just done an amazing God, job for us. And Jeff, we love it. We do. Can we give God a hand for our worship team and our pastor? Listen, though, I get it. You may not like everything we do style-wise, or you may not like the lights or the haze. The, the whole point of the haze is it catches the light. It makes the light glow. The goal is not to attract you with that stuff. I don't know if you knew this. Like one of my hobbies is stained glass. I like doing stained glass. It's kind of an odd hobby for pastors to do, right? But you know why I like it? I love looking through the glass because it's colors. I mean, it's just as simple as that. It's beautiful. Folks, we just want to make something beautiful for God. We have people work really hard on that. And I love it when somebody comes in, I'm being facetious, and goes, well, you know, I just don't really think I can worship like that. I go, do you realize someone's just poured their heart into that all week long to get that ready to pour out to God? And you're like going, I don't know. I don't know. The goal is not to attract you with that stuff, but to give our church family an environment that we can worship in. And, and, and I get it. We're not perfect at it. We'll screw up. We pour ourselves out in worship to God. Praise to God. It's like King David in the Old Testament. You'll remember when they moved the Ark of the Covenant that time and David danced with all his might with the music playing before the Ark. He poured out his worship for God. That's a story for another time. But the only thing I, I would say about that story is you don't want to make fun of or complain about someone else's worship. You just don't. Pour out your heart in worship through song, however you feel best fits you and your relationship with God, but don't try to force all of us to worship like you want it. Sixth area that I think will help you in worship, in spirit and in truth. Let me address a fear that some of you have shared with me in worship as we sing on Sundays. And that is just a fear uh, in an area that has such a hold on some of you. I've talked to many of you. And I want you to be able to let go of that fear. It's this idea of what other people think of you in worship. Like, it's literally controlling how you worship what other people think instead of your eyes on God. Think about the idea of lifting your hands in worship. You go, oh, here he goes, Pentecostal. <laughs> Listen to this passage. Psalm 143, verse six. I spread out my hands to you. I am like a parched land before you. Selah. By the way, that's in a song. Like a little kid holding his arms up to his dad to pick him up. It's the worldwide sign of, I need you, Daddy. You see, nothing is magical about lifting your hands. You don't have to do it. It's not like some force takes over you and you're like singing and you're really getting into it and you're like going, oh, they're going up when I do. Ah! You know, like that's not what happens. 
Lifting your hands in worship is just like lifting your voice in worship. Listen, it's a decision you make to physically show God how you're feeling inside. You see what I mean? You don't have to do it. It's a physical act that you do that demonstrates your worship, your adoration to God. Just like kneeling or clapping your hands to the beat or shouting hallelujah. There are quite literally dozens of verses, dozens of verses in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about raising your hands when you pray and when you worship. It's a common posture. It is the common posture of worship. What I'm saying is that it's not like a new thing that some guy in the 1970s invented. And I get it. Maybe there are some people of you that you've been around that do stuff that look how good I look in worship. You know, like you're performing for them. That needs to be repented of as well. But don't let those kind of folks keep you from physically worshiping God because you're afraid of what other people might think. Come on now. Be more concentrated on what God thinks of you and your worship. Is it pure? Is it from your heart? Is it in spirit and truth? We're not playing and singing and worshiping for each other. No. We have an audience of one, as Pastor Jeff loves to say. Let me remind you of a passage taken from the Gospel of John that doesn't seem like a worship picture at first. But it is. This is just before Jesus would be crucified and die on the cross. We read in John 12, 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. Got the picture? So they, came, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume. Pure and expensive nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary worshiped with extravagance. She poured out costly perfume on him. She didn't care what other people thought. And it cost her a lot of money. By the way, this is just another instance of Jesus saying he is the son of God because he receives that worship from Mary. Just after the story, which is recorded in all four gospel accounts, Judas thinks, why should she waste all that perfume on Jesus? It was just after this criticism, though, of Jesus receiving worship and how someone else worshiped, that he agreed to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. My point is this, Mary gets worship here. She pours out her love and devotion for Christ Jesus in public, and she doesn't care what you think of her. (laughs) And Jesus commends her for this worship. Brothers and sisters, it's time to worship God in both spirit and truth. It's time to let your voice be heard by God. Let it fill the air like the perfume that Mary poured out. Let it be a sweet sound. Now, we're going to pray. I'll have a couple, we'll have a couple of songs. Don't worry, I'm not going to be like checking like, 
over my shoulder while we're singing to see if like Haku all's raising their hand. See by on their knees. I'm not gonna look. But listen, if God deserves your worship and you love him, maybe you try lifting your hands. Maybe you try lifting your voice. Some of you may want to kneel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I delivered that message that you wanted delivered, I felt like. God, I probably ruffled some feathers, but I, I pray that your word sticks. God, it cuts me to the heart. God, I pray that we would be worshipers that would worship in spirit and in truth in Christ Jesus, that we would pour out our love for you in this time. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.